Welcome to the Joel Dattweiler Podcast. So we just finished an ABLE account seminar on September 23rd, 2021. Bad news is that the recording didn't do a good job recording during the seminar. Good news is I ended up recording it two or three more times into what is, I think, a more succinct, better way of spreading the word on ABLE accounts. So take a listen. Thanks for being here. See you soon. to a quantum group seminar on special needs and disability planning. Today's seminar will be strategies for ABLE accounts, what, how, and who. We'll look to do a good job covering information, and also we can provide additional explanations uh, if you have questions. So we will get to things and uh, work to provide good information and also uh, hopefully accurate information that uh, is good to do. So. Um, as we look at a couple things, we want to make sure we cover from a legal perspective and a financial perspective. My name is Joel Detweiler. I work with the Quantum Group Special Needs Planning here in Onalaska, Wisconsin, as well as Schmoker Financial Planning. We are part of the Commonwealth Financial Network. I am not an attorney, nor am I a CPA. And we'll talk about some things today, but I'm not giving legal or financial advice from a CPA standpoint or tax advice when it comes down to it. I'm licensed in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Colorado, Iowa, and Tennessee. Does not mean if you are, don't live in those states that we can't work together, but uh, that is uh, our disclaimer. We need to make sure we cover. And I think too, part of it is the uh, you know the elephant in the room, or the you know, being frank and addressing the elephant in the room. Frank the elephant is that uh, the presentations we're giving, we work with people every day. We want to work with people every day, and part of providing information is to hopefully attract people to work with our group because we think we work hard and do a good job and are, are concerned about the clients from a special needs planning standpoint and a financial standpoint. If we don't work together ever and all you do is listen, that's great. It's no problem. We want to provide it and it's, there's no hooks. So um, we want to talk about that. And, you know, we're, we're not here to fool anybody. We want clients, but at the same time, we also want clients who want to be with us too. So, so the presentation that we have, we're going to talk about, you know, we, we give a number of seminars from estate planning to special needs planning to legal instruments to, to you name it, right? Letters of intent, things like that. Today's presentation is about ABLE accounts, which is, you know, a financial resource that can be used by people in the disability community. What we're going to talk about today is ABLE accounts or the Stephen Beck Jr. ABLE Act, which was established in 2014. It was signed by President Obama. And what it did was establish in every state, the opportunity to have a savings option program available where it is a standalone account that can money can be saved to that is not accountable asset when it comes to whether or not it counts against government benefits. Um, we will have basically certain restrictions and certain things that we'll go through in terms of uh, this presentation. Some of the, you know, there are going to be some hooks that like you see there. We've talked about, uh, you know, like Medicaid payback is an issue um, or is a, a factor of these accounts potentially. And so we're going to cover that, work through that, and basically be sure that everybody understands it and kind of how things work. But at the end of the day, when you're done with this presentation, there's no reason not to have an ABLE account when it comes right down to it. You know, it's not going to hurt you, and it's better to have one and be able to use it when you're ready than it is to not. 
that's probably the uh, the theme of the uh, of the day. So, when you're a person within the disability community, or you have a disability, and you're receiving Social Security and or Medicaid benefits, one of the things that comes with it is that you're going to have a bank restriction of two thousand dollars. In most cases, there's some exceptions, but in most cases, people who are on those two benefits are restricted in their assets to only having $2,000 to their name. What an ABLE account does is provide an extra outside bucket that's a non-countable asset that can increase in value and you can contribute to it. And so it's a, it's a bit of a game changer when it comes to what it provides for the disability community. It's awfully hard to buy things if you aren't able to save more than $2,000. And so you're, you're kind of pushed into poverty and you're, you're, you're held there. ABLE accounts are a tool to, to hopefully help uh, alleviate some of those things. So, well, how do I get one? If it's such a great deal, how do I get one? Well, there's a couple of things that come into play. One is an age requirement. Your disability has to have been diagnosed prior to age 26. You don't have to be under 26 right now. Disability needs to be diagnosed prior to age 26. Second restriction or second uh, qualification is that if you are currently on government benefits, meaning SSI or SSDI, you automatically qualify. If the government's determined that you're eligible, you're eligible. If you aren't on those for some reason, but you are eligible and have a, have a government letter, you're good as well too. Or if you haven't even applied yet, but you have a diagnosis of an autism diagnosis or you know whatever it happens to be, whatever your disability is, if you have a doctor's diagnosis or you have an IEP or you have um, you know the thing, anything that goes with from a documentation standpoint that you have a justifiable disability that is considered probably will or is, will be lasting more than 12 months is permanent or can result in death, then you will also be eligible to, uh, from a social security standpoint, to, to check this box of severity of disability, that will allow you then to, to older enable account. As we look at it, you know, it's really, what is the, the disability diagnosis before age 26 or after, not your age right now. And when it comes to the disability part of it is, do you currently qualify for benefits from a social security standpoint? If so, you're in good shape. If not, is your disability considered permanent? Do you have other documentation? And really the big part of it here is that you do not need to provide documentation at the time that you set up the ABLE account. You need to have the documentation in the case that you're asked. If there's an audit or if there's something that goes on where they're not sure you know, whether you're eligible or not, but at the time of setup, you do not. So basically the excuse of, well, I've got to find my paperwork, you don't have to. You need to find it eventually and you need to have it on your person or available to you, but it's not something you need to have in order to set up the account. So we talked about who can do it and what the eligibility portions are. Well, then what's so great about it in terms of, well, what can I put into this account? Well, ABLE accounts, the tax code is 529A, which is not that far off from a 529 or a college savings account. Those accounts and ABLE accounts all track the gifting tax limitation, which is $15,000 a year right now. That will eventually go up, but right now, the limitation for putting funds into an ABLE account is $15,000 for all people who own ABLE accounts. Some exceptions apply. If you are a person who has an ABLE account and you work and you do not participate in retirement at the place that you work at, which is probably pretty common, 
then you're able to put in another just over $12,000 into the ABLE account and count that as a work exemption or a work contribution. So another unique thing, I guess, too, about ABLE accounts from the standpoint of the $15,000 is anyone can put funds in the ABLE account, not just you, not just a disabled, disabled person, grandmas and grandpas, teachers, employers, person walking down the street can all put money to the ABLE account towards the 15000 the owner, as a working person, can put in towards the work credit and pump that up to about twenty-seven thousand, if that was necessary. A couple of things, a couple of hooks to consider. Some are blown out of proportion a little bit more than it needs to be, I think. Um, if you're on supplementary, supplementary security income or SSI, there is a limitation of a hundred thousand dollars being a marker where if the balance of the account exceeds $100,000, your SSI benefits will be suspended until such time as your balance goes below $100,000. So you will not have benefits terminated, they'll simply be suspended. And that's a big difference to understand. The other thing to consider here is $100,000 in an ABLE account is, is, there's probably not too many existing ABLE accounts right now that have funds that are in excess of $100,000. That's pretty difficult to do. When you look at the math, at $15,000 a year into an ABLE account, which is substantial for someone who's, who's working and not normally used to just you know, saving $2,000, you'd have to pump a lot of money in with your family to, meet, to hit $15,000 a year. So $15,000 a year, it's going to take you six years just to get to $90,000. So ABLE accounts haven't really even been in existence long enough for many of the accounts to be over $100,000. And that's with the assumption that there's no spending from the ABLE account either. The idea is that you spend the money on yourself as a, as a qualified disability expense. So if all you're doing is pumping money into it and not even spending it, I don't think there's probably too many of those people that are out there. So that's one thing to understand is that you're gonna have, you know, it, it's not many people are at that, not that, that position yet. So I don't know that's even really occurred yet in terms of the SSI suspension. And the other part of it too is you're going to see it coming. You know, you're going to have a long time. You're going to be at, you know, if you're pushing money up into that account and it's going to be, you know, and you're growing it and you're at $100,000 at about 98, you might say, hey, well, let's let's back off a little bit. Let's spend some of this money. Let's see what's going on. So it's it's not going to be a surprise. You're always going to be able to track it and you're you're going to see it coming. So we talked about the the balance issue. That same balance issue you know, does not affect Medicaid. If you talk about the two types of benefits being income with Social Security and then healthcare with Medicaid, Medicaid is not affected by that $100,000 balance. There is no limit there. The only Medicaid piece that's important to understand is that there is a payback provision in the account that when the beneficiary passes away, the state has right, wherever you live, in most cases, the state has right to take funds or claim funds back for the money they spent during the time that the individual was alive. So ABLE accounts, so to speak, set money aside where the state says, we'll pay for your healthcare, but we're gonna keep track of the costs. And then when the beneficiary passes away, they say, okay, well, we've deferred those costs. We kept track. We'd like to recover some of those costs you know, as best we can from the accounts. The difference with an ABLE account is the state's gonna be the last person in line. So remaining family members can pay funeral costs, pay other bills, pay different expenses that they have, and then the state gets to take over. So if you look at it, and then they can only claim what they've spent money on while the ABLE account was in existence. 
So if the ABLE account or if the expenses for Medicaid are 20 years old and the ABLE account is only two years old, they can only reclaim for two years. Important things to understand and important to make sure that you know the rules. People get intimidated by the payback provision and will stop doing things because of it. I'm here to say that that's not, if you understand it and you work with somebody who, who will explain the rules, you understand the rules, then you, you know what that risk is and you may be okay with that and it's not that big a deal. So that's important to understand. So as we look at it, as kind of a little bit of a review, Social Security, Medicaid, two benefits that come in, the big deterrent before, less than $2,000 in your bank, very difficult to dig yourself out of that hole, okay? Very much a pain in the butt. The ABLE account provides, you know, for people who are diagnosis of disability prior to age 26, eligible for social security or have a permanent disability, they can save $15,000 a year, sometimes up to $27,000 a year. It's a really pretty good situation and that's what they are able to provide. When the owner passes away, we talked about this a little bit, what's important to understand is that the ABLE account will go into the estate of the owner. So it's probably a plug to make sure that there's at least a will in place for the person who's the beneficiary with the disability. Regardless of what their disability is, you know, it's important to, to have those ducks in a row. And as we said, outstanding bills are paid first, final expenses are gonna be paid. And then you can also work to possibly pay back the state. Some of those states are gonna be a little bit different um, in terms of whether they allow Medicaid to claim back. State of Oregon doesn't allow Medicaid to claim back from, um, from their accounts for their residents in the state of Oregon. That's important to understand. So if you live in Oregon, ABLE accounts are a really good deal from that standpoint because the state cannot claim payback. And so it becomes an even more attractive option for soaring funds. The payback provision we talked about as a review a little bit as well too. The state of Wisconsin does have claim currently. They'll be the last in line. And if it's really a major concern, we can design other things that work with a special needs trust or it's just understanding the rules of how the, what type of benefits are you getting and how expensive are they if your clock isn't ticking up that fast, well then enable account, you know, if it's just medication or a bus pass or, you know, other services that are provided and it's not that much, enable account may outpace the playback pretty fast and then and become something that really the family isn't too worried about. So why are we saving this money? Why are we opening these accounts? Why are we doing this? Why are we even having this conversation? Big part of it is really the ability to spend money on yourself. And so these qualified disability expenses are really what it's all about. Really what's important to understand in terms of the rules is the expense has to be incurred when the ABLE account was in place. So there's no backdating. You can't pay for a trip last month if your ABLE account is just set up today. Has to result or has to relate to the person with a disability. Can't be for friends and family. It can be for friends and family if that friend and or family member is a caregiver. But in most cases, if they're not, you can't be spending money on somebody else. As much as you like to be the person buying candy bars for everybody a quick trip, you just you can't you can't go around and do that. It's got to be for just that person. And then it also is something that the expense needs to be able to. And this is where I think it opens the door to a number of different options for the person with a disability: maintain or improve health, independence, or quality of life. And I think that's a big big deal when you look at things like you know you can still spend it on education. That's an absolute opportunity if you set it up for a younger child. We're not going to dictate whether or not they're going to college or not. We're not even going to try and determine that. We'll figure that out when they get there. But those funds can be used for education. Big difference, too, is they can be used for housing. That's something a special needs trust cannot use funds to pay for any type of housing. ABLE accounts can. 
transportation, technology, legal expenses, funeral expenses, basic living. You can do a healthcare membership. You can do, you know, it functions very similar to that of a special needs trust. The big difference is it doesn't cost nearly as much. It does have some restrictions, but it's got some opportunities. You know, it's, it's basically like a starter trust and a mini, a mini financial plan for the person with the disability to be able to go and do some really good things. Additional piece that many of them will have is a debit card. So really it's how ABLE accounts are, are easily accessible, very easy for tracking. Many of the accounts are done online with every state and you're able to track expenses. Uh, perhaps if your family's a person like our family, we use credit cards for everything, pay it off every month. Not a lot different with, with an ABLE with a debit card program is you can use that for those expenses, provides flexibility for the guardian or the parent or the rep payee, but also provides you know, flexibility for the person if they're a self-advocate. You know, we've got families that uh, take money and they put it kind of in a sidecar account that is it's a separate debit card account that's separate than that of the ABLE account, but still part of the program. And only the money that's in that account is at risk. So if you sweep $50 in for the person to use during the month, for example, if the card is lost or they're taken advantage of by somebody, the most that's at risk is what's in that account. In that case, if it's $50 compared to $15,000 in the ABLE account, that's a substantial difference and really a, a very good way of tracking and providing independence, but also having some safety. So, you know, with the, the visual that we have, it's, a, you know, the ABLE account, the sidecar debit account that we have, um, debit account card as well. And then you can spend that on qualified expenses. And it, again, it's specific to each family. You know, what, how does your family function? Do you like to function with checks or cash? Or do you like to function with debit cards? And it, it provides an option for that to be something that's very good, keeps records of everything. Um, you could pay regular bills on those accounts if you wanted to and, and really become, you know, streamline the expense process for, for you and your family. So we've talked about uses. How do you become eligible? What can you put in there? We also want to talk about where can you do it? Well, all but two states in the country. On the diagram I've got, it's got a couple of different gray states, but Wisconsin and Idaho are the only two that don't have standalone programs right now. Both states allow for people to leave the state and put their money elsewhere. One very common one that we use is Ohio. Virginia is another one that was one of the first ones to get set up. Really, you can go to uh, ablernc.org and you can compare states. It's a great place to go and look at what you want to do. Um, they all have their own little options, but they're all very similar and all will provide some type of benefit. We've helped people numerous times sort through the options and say, hey, what's going to be good for you? What do you like? Um, you know, and at some point in time, if you are someone who lives in one of these states with the non-Medicaid payback provision, it's absolutely worth looking into that. So Wisconsin apparently is on the horizon. We'll see if that happens or not. Um, we've pushed to say, hey, how about no Medicaid payback provision? Don't know if that'll be uh, acceptable or not, but it'd be great if it was. So, but ABLERNC is probably the best place to go if you're a, a research person. Um, if you're not, you prefer to get some advice, don't be afraid to reach out to us. I'm sure we can, we can walk you through and, and get things uh, put together in a pretty good spot. So, so a couple of things case studies wise, right? Just to kind of give you some listeners and everybody who's looking at this, just different idea of what's going on. We've got a couple of different age limitations here, right? So two-year-old born with a disability. Absolutely eligible. Under age 26, diagnosis, you're in good shape. 19-year-old with autism diagnosis, same kind of thing. Under age 26, official diagnosis from a doctor, pretty simple. 36-year-old with a Down syndrome diagnosis. So 
that's the one where Down syndrome most likely designated at birth, then that was prior to age 26. Even though you're 36 now, doesn't matter. Diagnosis was prior to age 26. I mean, you can be 85 as long as you had your diagnosis prior to age 26, long before ABLE accounts even came into existence, still eligible to set one up. Last one would be 36-year-old with traumatic brain injury or PTSD that was diagnosed at age 28. So older than 26, diagnosis after 26, not eligible right now, could be eligible in the future. Conversation has, has come around federally about pushing that age limit up, but at the moment right now, that would not be a way that we would pursue it. We'd look to do something else with that individual. A couple of case studies, we talk about just solutions. Some we've had and some are just examples, but uh, we've got a child who's 10 with a qualifying disability, grandparents, and she has two siblings who are traditionally developing. Grandparents want to give money to all three of them, and they want to do 529 plans. Well, as we talked about, 529 is college savings. 529A is ABLE. You can spend on education. ABLE can spend on whatever you want in terms of the basic living expenses for the person who has a disability. So if we're drawing our pictures, which we are drawing pictures, for those of you listening, we'll have in this particular case, we're going to have a 529 for one child, one sibling, we'll have another 529 for the other, and then we'll have an ABLE for our child with a disability. $15,000 can go into each. You also have the ability to spend out of all three. The restrictions that you have with the 529s, different than the ABLE though, is 529s have to be spent on education expenses only. And if those children don't go to college or don't go to private school, those funds aren't spent in order to get those funds out, there's a penalty. With an ABLE account, you can spend them on education, but you also could spend them on a number of other things, and there's really no limitation to when. So it's an account that once it starts, there's no reason to change it. So there's a bit of a silver lining there with a the disability account that provides more flexibility than the 529 account. And also, one of the things you can have is $529 can then be, let's say that the two siblings go to school and there's money left over, $529 can be dumped into ABLE accounts as well too, and then used by the child with a disability. Example number two, we've got 45 year old male with who's uh, eligible for social security and Medicaid. Disability happened prior to age 26. In this case, he's not eligible because he has too many assets. He's a business owner, runs a consulting business and has full employee benefits for himself and his family and his employees. So if you look at what he's got, he's going to have a 401k. He can put $19,500 into that right now. We're going to say he has a Roth IRA for himself, which is 6,000. He's going to have a Roth for his wife, very successful businessman. That's another six. And he'd say, well, what good does an ABLE account do him? Well, in this case, he doesn't need the ABLE account from a spending standpoint, but he could use the ABLE account for a tax deferred account. Money that goes in grows tax-free and money is distributed grows tax-free. He can put $15,000 into that ABLE account every year for himself and then be able to spend it. Very similar to that, the end game is like that of a Roth IRA tax-free. And probably the other benefit is that he does not have to wait until age 59 and a half in order to spend the ABLE account funds. So another bucket wouldn't be a traditional design here necessarily, but it would be an option where he has a qualifying disability, no reason why he can't use it and absolutely should use it should he have the funds to put it into that account as long as he uses them on himself and not other people 
and use them the correct way, that ABLE account can be a, uh, a part of his financial plan that would be quite impactful. Another case, we've got a female, Mary, who's 32. She's on SSI and Medicaid right now. Her parents are ages 67 and 65, and they're going to retire. So right away, there's a definite change there. Mary's benefits is going to change from SSI to SSDI, which then changes from a monthly reporting in which money made can lower your benefit to an annual reporting, which is a big deal for Mary. The other part is Mary works part-time, but she'd like to be an Uber driver. She wants to save money, but obviously can't save more than $2,000. And you can't get much better than the, you know, for $2,000, the Corolla I had, but eight years ago with 250,000 miles on it was about $2,000. That's not gonna work for an Uber car. So in this case, we can set up an ABLE account for Mary. Maybe she can get help from moms and dads. Maybe her employer can help out too because they don't offer a retirement. And so they say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna be able to contribute to your ABLE account as well too. So they can start building up towards that $15,000 limit. Well, Mary also works, right? So, but she doesn't participate in retirement. So she can put an additional $12,000 in if she wants. So now we're talking 15,000 plus 12. Technically we can have about $27,000 in the first year to buy a car for Uber. Don't know if she'll need that much, but she can have a place where she can get money and work on getting that car. And I think that's the better quality of life for her, start saving. And then if she's working as an Uber driver as well too, then she can start to contribute to the ABLE. It really becomes a retirement account and becomes really a way for her to pick herself up and do some really good things and start to enjoy life from that standpoint. Sometimes it's about timing, right? We've got David who's eligible for an ABLE account. David gets in a car accident. There's a personal injury claim. Attorney calls and says, I've got a check for $30,000. David says, geez, that's $28,000 too much. So this is an actual case where the client came to us. We opened an ABLE account in this case, and it worked out good that it was in December because we have we can ride the, uh, the edge of two years. So it was 2019. We open an ABLE account. We call the attorney. He dumps in $15,000 into the ABLE account because he can from his firm for the benefit of David. We use the first $15,000 for 2019. On January 2nd, the attorney cuts another check to the ABLE account for 2020. We utilize both years' contributions to cover the $30,000. And now before, where David would have had to spend that money down and burn $28,000 to maintain benefits, we're able to maintain benefits in about a 15-day period by taking two checks and putting them into an ABLE account from the attorney, and David never has the money in his possession. So that was a very unique solution, but a very interesting one and one that was pretty satisfying to be able to help David in this example to be able to maintain benefits, have funds, and now David's got $30,000 to use for his benefit. That's a pretty big situation. That's something that's, that's impactful to those people that, uh, that are you know, forced into that situation. Another example would be, and this is one I think it's important for communication. You know, Mark and Sheila, they're married. They've got a 21-year-old son who's uh, went through transition. He's on both Social Security and Medicaid benefits. They're getting a divorce. And they want to make sure that their son is cared for. And they're also going to provide expenses and have agreed to both pay. Many times in divorce situations or in maintenance-type payments situations, the child or the adult disabled child receives the funds in their name. 
obviously that's not going to work out well in this situation. If we're talking about benefits coming in from social security, from mom, from dad, all these different things. And if it's going to be in his name, it's going to be a scramble to stay under. Right. So in this particular case, we can use a special needs trust as kind of our initial holding. Right. So we'll talk about, we're going to create this special needs trust of our box, right. Special needs trust SNT. Okay. And mom is over here and she's going to contribute her money every month to, to, uh, we're going to say it's John to John special needs trust. Dad over here, Mark is going to contribute his money to the special needs trust. And John is the beneficiary off to the side. So the special needs trust is there for his benefit. Well, those funds grow and there's also some restrictions and it's a little bit clunky to get money out of the special needs trust. So there is a provision where we want to create an ABLE account and the special needs trust can contribute funds to the ABLE account on John's behalf. And so now we have a special needs trust that receives the bulk of the funds. It also contributes money to an ABLE where John is able to get a debit card in place and have some freedom and do what he wants to in terms of spending. Mark and Sheila feel good that they can give some freedom, but also track things. And they also have a thing in place, a tool in place to keep them in good graces with each other and agree to take care of their child, John. Also on top of that, should they both be remarried, so on and so forth in their estate plans with their next spouses, they can also put a provision in place that talks about a portion of their estate would then pour into that special needs trust for the benefit of John as well too. So future can be cared for, John can, John's independence can be taken care of, and we can maintain a level of communication that's for the best interest of the family and of the child. So as we just talked about, special needs trusts are in play. That's kind of another factor we snuck in there at the end and can be very good tools with ABLE accounts. And like we said, ABLE accounts are kind of starter trusts and then special needs trusts are the bigger ones that can be more expensive and more elaborate, but both are very well to use together. Sometimes you're gonna run into some things in the state of Wisconsin and Minnesota, and maybe in your state as well too, if you're not in there, is you're gonna have a thing called the MAP program, Medicaid assistance or medical, medical assistance pre, uh, premium payment program. In that case, asset limits can go from $2,000 to $15,000. That can be a game changer. You also can have things called independence accounts in the state of Wisconsin, which I would assume are in other states as well too. Those things are, that's where it becomes very specific and you want to do a good job of understanding how those asset limits, you know, affect, you know, do you need a trust then? Do you not need a trust? All those things are, it's like, what benefits do you have? What exactly is going on here? And how do we design this thing the best way? Maybe you don't even know what those programs are. Maybe you're eligible for those programs and that'd be good to understand as well too. So um, another thing we talk about that's involved too is retirement plans. We've mentioned this, if you participate in retirement, if you're working somewhere, Retirement plans, by and large, especially 401ks, are not eligible for or are not to be considered accountable asset. It's often a mistake made by caseworkers. If you are working at a location or at a foreign employer and you have a 401k, as long as you are working there and you're an active employee, that retirement plan is not accountable asset. If you're being told that's the case, give us a call. We can sort through it with you. Make sure we understand. Could be that it is, could be, in most cases, we don't think that it is. Um, now, if you cease to become an employee and you leave that place, well, then that retirement plan becomes an you know, accountable asset. So definitely some, some rules there to, to be aware of, but when we talk about trusts are in play, 
Medicaid programs that raise your asset limit, depending upon the state that you're in and how retirement plans are treated, are all other factors that we haven't covered tonight that are important to understand. Final thoughts, really, you know, don't procrastinate. If you can set it up, set it up. Nothing wrong with having it, even if there's only 25 bucks in it. Don't let the rules around $100,000 balance, Medicaid payback, anything like that scare you from doing it. You don't, you only put the money in you want to when it comes down to it. And I think it becomes very specific to you and your situation and having a conversation with a professional who understands both as a caseworker and maybe a financial professional like us, that we understand how to help you. And that it's very specific to you. And at the end of the day, if you don't want to put money in because you are worried about Medicaid payback, that's up to you. But we can talk through it to see what, what's going to be a good situation and how do we manage it. And really the last part is just make some goals you know, just like anything else, what do you want to do with this and how do we maximize it? It's not a cookie for everybody. It's going to be specific to how you want to use it. And that's going to be the most important thing. Hey, this is Joel. If you're hearing this, you've just listened to one of our podcasts. Thanks for being here and thanks for taking the time. Please share, spread the word, all those different things that come with all the social media platforms I don't know very much about. Find us at www.quantumplanners.com or jdetweiler at quantumplanners.com. We'd love to hear all the good things and we still want to hear the bad things. If there's something we can do better, please let us know. Thank you to Corey and Ryan with MCO Advisors for their curating, editing, and general marketing advice. The Joel Tatwater podcast is graciously supported by the Ava and Lily Downtown Baby Corporation. Downtown Baby, I can do karate. Downtown Baby, I can call my mom. Downtown Baby, I can eat salami. Downtown Baby, oops, I'm sorry, Todd. This communication is strictly intended for individuals residing in the states of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Colorado, and Tennessee. No offers may be made nor accepted from any resident outside these states due to various state regulations and registration requirements regarding investment products and services. Investments are not FDIC nor NCUA insured, are not guaranteed by a bank financial institution, are subject to risks including possible loss of the principal invested. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, Registered Investment Advisor, Schmoker Financial Services, 2800 National Drive, Suite 103, Onalaska, Wisconsin, 54650. The Quantum Group does not provide tax nor legal advice. Please consult a legal or tax professional regarding your individual situation. Tax and or legal services provided by a third party, CPA or attorney, or other professionals are separate and unrelated to both Quammen Group and Commonwealth Financial Network.